Thank you for downloading or watching our sermon series titled Redeemed in Christ. We are going through the Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism is written in 1563 using a question-and-answer format. The Catechism's goal is to instruct the Lord's people to understand the Reformed faith by answering common questions from the Scripture. Please join us as we walk through this historic document and ponder the Lord's grace and mercy as we are reminded that we are redeemed in Christ. As the church continues to face questions from the world and people continue to doubt the reality of Christ, we sort of probably, deep down if we're honest, have a little bit of us that wishes that the people in Babel in Genesis 11 uh, would have been successful in building their stairwell to heaven. That if they were those that, that built this, we could easily go up to heaven. We could personally bring our requests to Christ. We could enter into his presence physically, and we could know that Christ really hears our prayers. Uh, we wouldn't have to just pray by faith. We could actually walk right into the heavenly courtroom, uh, make our requests, of the great king, and then we could come back down unto this earth. And so when, when we say that, we also know that God has uh, intervened and interrupted that process and didn't allow for that stairwell or staircase to be built. And so when, when we hear that, we might say, well, why is it that God doesn't want us to just come into his presence in that way? And why is it that the Lord is one who seems uh, to want to be distant from us. In other words, it seems that as Christ ascends into heaven, uh, this is not a good thing, but yet we're told it actually is a good thing. And so as we ask that question, why is it such a good thing that Christ is away from us, seated in the glory of heaven, and leaves us here even as we heard this morning of that reminder to sojourn, right? face testing, face trials, how is that actually a good thing? So as we consider this, we'll see first the fullness of deity, we'll see dwells bodily, and last we'll see that he ascended in absolute authority. And so let's begin with the fullness of deity. And if we look at answers 46 to 47 of the Catechism, that it reminds us of the story that we know that Christ visibly, bodily, ascended into heaven. We have a record of this in Mark 16, uh, verses 19 and 20. Luke 24, verse 50 records this for us, as well as Acts, verses, Acts 1, verses 6 to 11. And so it records for us that Christ did not shed uh, the flesh, but he actually ascended uh, as the God-man. And so we might say, well, then why do we want God or Christ to be there on our behalf? How is this any good for us? And it would seem better, as I mentioned, that if he would dwell on earth or make it so we could visibly come into his presence, it's a lot easier uh, for us to bring our request to him, to be confident when we have our doubts and our faith. We can just knock on the door, walk in, say, oh yeah, there is my glorified Lord seated upon the throne. But yet the catechism is assuring us that it's actually good that he ascended into heaven. And, and we might think, well, this is absurd because that means he has left us. But as we hear that, the catechism wants us to understand that as he has gone to heaven and ascends to heaven, 
And he's one who's going to also literally return to earth. So it's not that Christ has really forgotten us, but that there is a reality that we will visibly be reunited with Christ once again. And so that's basically question and answer 46 with that assurance. 47 goes on where it gives us this reality of this tension. On the one hand, uh, we can understand as Christ ascends into heaven and it uses uh, some language that we might find somewhat uh, difficult to understand what it's getting at. Uh, 47, 48 would basically have this struggle. But right, basically what it's laying out is the two views of Christ that were heretical. Uh, hopefully the kids in catechism remember this. Nestorius and Eutychius. Uh, Nestorius uh, believed that the flesh of Christ uh, was morally united to uh, the second person of the Trinity. And so the two natures aren't necessarily joined together into one person. They're radically separated. Uh, it's not that Christ is conceived by the Holy Spirit in the Virgin Mary, but there's something that fuses two natures together, but they're not really joined together into one person. If Nestorius was really pushed to the logical conclusion, it's almost as if Christ is two different persons, two different people, two different radical natures that cannot be joined together into one person. That's probably the most simple way I can explain it. Uh, when pushed, uh, he would just continue to talk about that radical division. Now Eutychius is the other extreme. He believes that when Christ is raised in a glorified body, that the glorified body can be everywhere present. And so the, the humanity and the God nature of Christ join together in such a way that once he is raised from the dead and glorified, he's everywhere present as a God-man. The problem with this, as we can read in the introduction to Job, uh, we find in Isaiah, we find in the vision of Revelation. You know, the introduction of Job when God says, where did you come from when he talks to Satan? Satan says, from going to and fro in the world. Implication being Satan's not everywhere present, even as he is a spiritual being, a fallen angel. We find that even in Isaiah, when Isaiah is called into the heavenly council, the angel moves from one place to another place, that there's a, a visible movement, that, it's, that the angel, even as a spiritual uh, being, still is, is limited to particular places just like us. You know, we, we can't be in church and home at the same time. We're either in church or, or, or we're home or we're either at the grocery store or we're home. We can't be multiple places at one time. And so that's what we have to understand with the glorified nature of Christ. He's still the God-man. And so what this for, uh, answer 47 is introducing is we don't want to go to either of these extremes, saying the two natures of Christ are so radically divided uh, that Christ is no longer the God-man or that these natures are, are put together in such a way that, that they lose the properties of what these natures are. He is, Christ is still the God-man. So according to his humanity, he can only be seated at the right hand of God, but according to his divinity, he can be everywhere present at once. And so, as our catechism builds on this, it wants us to understand the significance of Christ being in heaven. This is telling us that while, it, while he's not everywhere present, and as these two natures are joined together, 
He wants to assure us Christ is never absent from us. Uh, so just because visibly, if he went into heaven and, and you would see him seated on the throne like John does in his vision, and you see him seated, it seems, on a real throne, a river of life proceeding from him as we have the vision in Revelation, that, that the reality is we think, well, he's just there. But the catechism is telling us according to the divine nature, he's everywhere present. Uh, so it means that Christ is God and man, so everything that comprises the divine nature is there with the humanity, but obviously the humanity isn't going to exhaustively you know, contain a divine nature and that he's only limited to that place. I understand this gets a little abstract, but the reality is Christ is everywhere present according to his divine nature because that's still one of his natures. He's divine, he's human. Two natures join together. And we want Christ to be in heaven because this testifies to the reality that a glorified flesh is fit to dwell in the presence of heaven's glory, in the presence of God. And so there is something that's very assuring about that. And so we talk about the introduction of this, but what is Paul telling us in terms of Colossians 2? Well, as I've mentioned before, this is a, a letter where it seems there's some sort of hybrid religion. It uh, could be a religion, philosophy, something of Judaism, something of what seems to be a form of pre-Gnosticism, of some higher pursuit of some spiritual knowledge or spiritual uh, greatness uh, that an individual is pursuing. Now, whatever the case, the Apostle Paul doesn't lay out for us the specifics, and so we're, we're making our deductions based upon what Paul is saying here. He, he identifies us as a philosophy. We have this identity of pulling back and observing some particular feast days, uh, pulling back and following certain food laws, that's why we say it seems that this is some form of Judaism that's coming into the church. Seems there's some threats of uh, spiritual powers uh, that the people are afraid of. So this is probably some sort of pagan thinking, some sort of pagan religion of multiple gods. And, and really the issue that, that, that this is getting at is an issue that impacts us today. Is our God strong enough to overcome? If Christ is seated in glory, if he's ascended to heaven, is he strong enough to overcome? So as the Apostle Paul goes about this, he wants us to understand that whatever powers these individuals are afraid of, like in verse 8, see to it no one takes you captive. This is deception, a capturing that's going on here. And this captivity is, is this thing where we're allowing ourselves to be taken in by this. And so Paul's saying, basically, be wise. Uh, you have the truth. Don't concede what these individuals are saying and think that there's some sort of a power that's out there, uh, something that's stronger than Christ. Because that, that seems to be the struggle that's going on in verse 8. Now, we can think the same thing. We can think there's powers on this earth. We can maybe, in some traditions, maybe not so much in the Reformed tradition, but get so overwhelmed by demonic forces or satanic powers that we can say, wow, can God really overcome them? And when the spiritual warfare breaks out, is God really able to overcome? And so the Apostle Paul is saying right here, don't, don't allow your mind to go there. Even though we're tempted to ask the question, even though we may ask the question, the Apostle Paul is saying, don't let your mind dwell there. Because when he tells us 
that we are to be warned about this human tradition, philosophy, empty deceit, uh, that this is a thought process of people coming into the church, thinking that there's something lacking in Christianity, and there's something that's more fulfilling out there and more powerful, more edifying, and more encouraging. Now, of course, when you uh, get into these traditions, you find that a lot of times it's done by human works. In fact, they'd argue this is what makes Christianity very distinctive, uh, that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by the work of Christ. And so the implication, you know, where we are as human beings, going back to our creation, what do we want? We want the work. We want the thing to do that's going to pull us up in our own strength by our own bootstraps. Now, of course, we do our works out of gratitude, but, but we don't want to start with, this is the work that I must do to find my strength. And, and that's what appeals to us as humans. We, we, we need to be aware of that. We all struggle with that. This is who we are. But the Apostle Paul wants us to understand that, that when we allow our minds to go to these human traditions, when we start thinking there's powers greater than Christ, he reminds us, not according to Christ. In other words, these things are contrary to Christ himself. We are those who are made alive in Christ, set apart in our Lord. And so this call for us is to understand that we have to have a clear understanding of who Christ is. Because if we just go to verse 8 and say, okay, well, Paul can assert that these elemental spirits and these works of the flesh and these things that these individuals are holding out for me that seem very persuasive, how do I know that Christ really is more powerful? After all, uh, when we hear the story of Christ, isn't he someone who just taught people, performed miracles? Isaiah performed miracles. Moses performed miracles. How do we know that Christ performing miracles is more significant than Moses or Elijah or these other men who have gone before him or even the apostles? How do we know this? The apostle Paul jumps right to the reality of this in verse 9. The whole fullness of deity dwells in him. So what this means is that the very fulfillment of God. So of course, uh, when you think about who God is in terms of being everywhere present, we can say that everything is full of God, but not everything can contain God. So all of God can be in one particular place, and God is also beyond that one particular place, something we do not comprehend. Uh, we are humans. We are creatures. We can only think in terms of, I can only stand in this place, and I can't sit in the pew at the same time. Just as you can say, you can only sit in a pew, and you can't uh, be up here or sitting behind me at the same time. We're, we can only be in one particular location. And so this is what we have to understand as humans. This is where our minds are limited. And the Apostle Paul is saying, let your mind dwell upon what Christ has done. Everything that is God dwells fully in Christ. And so he's saying, in, in our minds, we might think, well, Christ just walked this earth. He performed some miracles. But after all, he was unsuccessful because he died on a cross. The Apostle Paul is saying, no, the fullness of God dwells in him. And so this is meaning that everything uh, that belongs to God is in him. Now notice then, as he goes on, so we say, okay, well, that's about Christ. Praise be to God that he has sent him. But I'm still struggling with these, these powers. So 
I know Christ is a God-man, but how does this really impact me and the assurance of it all? And he says in verse 10, And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. So right here, he's speaking of this union we have in our Lord. Remember, we've talked about Calvin. As long as Christ remains outside of us, he is of no benefit to us. I think a very brilliant uh, perception that, that Calvin has there, and I doubt it's unique to him. It's just something that has resonated with me in book three. But when you really think about what that means, if Christ ascends into heaven and he's on the plane of heaven and we're here on earth and there's no way for us to be joined to Christ or Christ to be joined to us, well, then it's theatrics, right? I mean, what Christ has done is just theatrics. It's, it's neat that Christ has come, that he's conquered death and he's been raised. But if he just ascends to heaven and, and leaves us here, well, then what, what good is that? And so Paul is assuring us in verse 10 that the very fulfillment is what this means, that the fullness of what we need is in him. Uh, going on as we look at this in Colossians 1 verse 9, he desires we would be filled with knowledge. Colossians 1 verse 25, uh, that Paul wants to make sure that the word of God is fully known, that, that it finds its fullness, its completion. Ephesians 4 verse 10, we have fill all things. 5 verse 18, a reminder, don't, be, uh, don't give yourself over to wine or get drunk with, with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, it's an understanding of what Paul is laying out here is the ascension of Christ is not just theatrics. God showing what he could do and how powerful he is and sort of teasing us. The Apostle Paul is saying, as Christ is ascended into heaven as a God-man, you are joined to this Lord. These powers that we think can threaten us, that we think are so mighty, so magnificent, really don't have much hold on us as we're in Christ. I mean, yes, they, they can make our lives miserable here for a few years. Yes, they can torment us, if you will, for a few years, but ultimately... The assurance is knowing Christ will see us through this age. We will dwell with him in heaven. And so Paul, what I appreciate about the Apostle Paul and his Burkhoff's theory on Paul versus the other apostles, the other apostles, you know, you look at Peter, you look at James, they talk about suffering, talk about the wilderness, and they talk about entering into glory. Paul's always calling our attention to the glorified Christ. And the theory is, the other disciples witnessed the suffering of Christ to the resurrection. When Paul encounters Christ, he encounters the ascended, glorified Christ. And so for Paul, Pharisee of Pharisees, works righteousness guy, he's saying, listen, it's not about my works, not about what I do. It's understanding who I am as I am grounded in Christ and starting from that point and then proceeding in the Christian life. So Paul's inviting us now to contemplate and think, wait a minute, if my Lord is seated in glory, if Christ did not shed the bodily flesh that he took on in the incarnation, and he takes us to heaven with him and unites me to him, what do I ultimately have to fear in this age? I mean, what, what can man ultimately at the end of the day do to us? Kill us? Murder us? Uh, maybe torture us, make our lives miserable for a time. That's really the worst 
that can be done. If we go to the most extreme case, and I'm not saying we're going to the extreme case, but if you logically work it out, that's the worst that can happen to us. And here we have the assurance that our ultimate victory, the ultimate outcome of our life is secured and hidden in Christ. And as we covered last time, he descended into hell, something we will never have to endure, and he guarantees our place in heaven. So the Apostle Paul is saying, let your minds dwell on that reality. The fullness of who he is, the fullness of his glory is in heaven. The fullness of the God-man is there. Now going on to question and answer 48, when we deal with this dwells bodily or dwells bodily in heaven. Now when we talk about this, it's building on that notion of Nestorius and Eutychius. Remember, Nestorius radically divided nature, maybe morally united at best, but is not joined together in one person. I grant this gets abstract, but it's probably the simplest way I can say it. So you can actually just take a knife and, and cut the two natures apart and have two persons if you really work out the implications of it. It's just something just kind of, it's kind of like glue sticking them together, but they're not really fully bonded. So that's one person comprised of two natures and two wills, human and divine, as we say in terms of Christian orthodoxy. Eutychius saying that when Christ is raised, the divine is swallowed up, and, or the, the glorified humanity is swallowed up in the divine, so now by his humanity he can be everywhere present. And so it's building on this concept. And what the Catechism wants us to understand, just simply stated, Christ in his full glory as a God-man dwells in the glory of heaven. So again, this is driving home a point of the ascension, but the Catechism really wants us to understand our flesh is in heaven. Uh, he dwells there bodily. And so how do we know this? Well, getting back to Colossians 2 verse 9, we find at the end of verse 9, what does he say? For the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And so when, when you think about what's going on in this church, the human tradition, the philosophy, the do not handle, do not touch, do not eat, this sounds not only like Judaism, but the pre-Gnosticism. So when you get to the full-orbed Gnostic belief, basically as you deprive your flesh of pleasure, uh, so certain foods, pleasures in the flesh, whatever they may be, you actually hone and, and transform the spirit within you. And so you say certain things are evil or certain things are wicked, and, and you don't want that because you want to shed the flesh. The flesh is necessarily evil. So what you do to the flesh is inconsequential. So in terms of the Gnostics, you had two different beliefs. You had some that say, just torture the flesh because that will hone the spirit. Others say, no, overindulge the flesh. Give it whatever it wants. There's no rules for the flesh because the flesh is evil, depraved, and falling away. It's the spirit that matters. So here the Apostle Paul, I'd argue, is countering this belief. That he wants us to understand that Christ, in attaining the ideal state of his ascension, does not shed the flesh. Right? I mean, this is an important point. Paul's saying, listen, as we look at this reality, Christ doesn't shed the flesh. So when Christ returns, he's going to come back as a glorified God-man. When we are resurrected, 
we will take on the glorified flesh that Christ has won and attained for us. That's where we're going. And so we, we shouldn't see our flesh or our bodies as necessarily evil. Uh, it's fallen. We experience the curse, no doubt. Uh, we struggle with sin, no doubt. But we have to understand that God hasn't just come to redeem us spiritually, but he's come to redeem us as whole people. He has come to bring this creation to its goal. There's a new heavens, a new earth. Uh, the creation longs for the ultimate outcome and consummation, which means even this physical creation is something uh, that is going to also be seen uh, in our glorified state. We're not just going to be roaming around, floating around, uh, just going through the air. We're going to be wandering and walking uh, on the new heavens and the new earth. And so when, when Christ does this, there, there's an important point that's made here. The body is not necessarily evil. He has undergone this. Well, Paul goes on in verses 11 and 12, and he makes this, this strange correlation that almost seems like it doesn't follow, that, that he just jumps uh, to another point, like a squirrel runs in front of his manuscript and he just writes something else, and you go, well, where is this coming from? But we understand when he tells us about the body, we can say, well, why is the incarnation of Christ so important? Why is it so important he takes on the flesh? Well, he tells us. In verses 11 and 12, because now he's talking about the significance of the flesh and, and the freedom of removing and taking away the curses from us, because he's been circumcised, right? So this is cutting off the flesh, and he's circumcised uh, not by human hands, which means his father has circumcised him. Uh, so the meaning of this, we can say, well, wait a minute, when Christ was an infant, they brought him over to the rabbi, and we have record of Christ being redeemed, going through this process, being circumcised as a child. Well, what are they talking about? What's Paul saying? Well, Paul wants us to see the reality. As Christ bears a sign, he's never compromised his Jewish identity. He never compromised who he was as a Messiah. And yet, like Isaac, he's fully cut off, karat, cut a covenant. And so uh, Isaac was one who was to be fully circumcised to be a burnt offering before the Lord. Christ underwent this reality, being cut off by the hand of his father. So we're saying, oh, so this is basically question answer 15 of the Heidelberg Catechism, where it says, what kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for then? And the answer is, he must be truly human and uh, truly righteous, yet more powerful than all creatures. Uh, that is, he must be true God. Why? He must be able to endure an eternal punishment, an eternal sanction, and he must be one who is also the creature who is offended. And so the implications of this is brought in right here. He takes on the flesh to be circumcised, to be cut off, and so he is the God-man, not just morally put together, uh, but he truly is two natures joined together in one person. As we go on, this notion of having been buried with him in baptism, this is simply saying he passed into the pit of hell. He passed into the <clears throat> realm of the dead, the full sanction of what death means. He has taken this. And he wants us to understand that we were those who were dead in our trespasses. We were those uh, who were sinful. We are those who uh, deserve to have this reality uh, put upon us. And so as we look at this, 
He takes away our record of debt. So this is getting at what we've said in fancy language of double imputation. Our sins get credited to him. His righteousness gets credited to us. This event happens in the cross, testified in his bodily resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul is not shying away from the reality that Christ is one who uh, took on the true flesh. It's not a different flesh. As some have also talked about, that Mary becomes an incubator where there's a flesh that comes from heaven uh, that gets sort of mixed together with the divine within Mary, that he doesn't really take on true human flesh. She's just sort of an incubator to raise up Christ. No. The Apostle Paul is saying our flesh has been cut off. Our flesh has experienced death. Our flesh has been nailed to the cross. Our flesh has passed into hell. And our flesh has been glorified. So the Apostle Paul wants us to be assured of this reality. And so as Christ is seated in heaven as a God-man, it testifies that we are those who are worthy to dwell in the glory of God of heaven. So lastly then we look at question answer 49. And this lays out for us basically the benefits, but it spells out what we've heard just in a more explicit and I'd argue simple format as it goes through this. So answer 49. Christ is our advocate. Now when we hear advocate in our day and age, we can think of a representative or a politician. And and I know for myself I can be rather cynical about that and say, sure, he's going to represent me when he asks for my vote, and he's not going to represent me when somebody else makes a great contribution for this individual to uh, vote some other way that I might not desire. But this is not Christ. And this is what we have to understand. He's not an advocate like we've experienced in a fallen world. He truly is advocating for us in the context of heaven, having God's will and God's purpose. And so his divine purpose, his divine desire is for our benefit, for our good, to conform us to the Lord. So when we hear advocate here, we have to think of it in the purest and most holy form of Christ desiring us to dwell with him in heaven. Second, as I've made allusion to, it makes explicit, our flesh is in heaven. We have to understand We're not those who are just going to shed the flesh as if our flesh is necessarily evil. When God creates man, when he does his creation, he pronounces a benediction. It is good. This means that our flesh is redeemed. And so we are those that when we have our desires of the flesh, now Paul puts that in a negative connotation when I'm saying that now, I mean basically desiring to eat or or things along those lines, That is not necessarily pursuit of sin, but understanding that the things we desire, we discern what's pleasing unto God. Knowing that as we take care of ourselves for his glory, uh, this is part of our redemption. We we don't apologize uh, for being individuals in the flesh. God has created us. Uh, We are created by his hand. We have been redeemed. Lastly, we find he sends his spirit. As I close the service this morning from John 14, we think of Christ ascending into heaven. In the context of that, he speaks of building our room, building a place for us to dwell eternally. And so we we have to see the personal connection we have with Christ. It's rather remarkable. 
He's actually building a place for us to dwell forever. It's a personal building, a personal dwelling. And so when his spirit is sent out, this means he intimately knows us. And we think of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8. We don't even know what to pray. We, we don't, I don't know if you've ever been to that point where you feel so broken, so worn out, uh, so distraught. You don't even know what to say or, or what to ask for. You, you have no clarity of mind uh, to even call out to God. Well, the assurance of Romans 8 and what the Catechism is saying to us is that the Spirit who dwells within us knows our inner turmoil, knows our weakness, and brings those requests up to God. And so we, we can't minimize this blessing either because even when we're brought to the point of where we feel as if, you know, it's just despair, not that I'm advocating we go to the place of despair, but where we feel as if we're at that place where there's no hope, there, there's no place to move beyond this. We feel trapped that we have this assurance that the Catechism tells us. The Spirit is present. God is still moving us. God is still tugging us along even when we feel He is not there. And so how do we know that this is really what the Apostle Paul is teaching us? We back up, we notice in verse 10, that language of being filled in him. That it's so important when we talk about this union with Christ that we understand we find our fulfillment in Christ. That, that it's not just some thing by faith that we just believe this and it means something to me that it's sentimental. I, I hope it means something to you. I, I hope there is something sentimental in a proper good sense of it. But we also have to see the deeper meaning of faith, that we're reaching into Christ. We're taking hold of his person, the one who dwells in glory. This is the one who is at work in us, who has not abandoned us. This is the assurance we have. And so verse 10 is saying, everything we need to, to find our fullness, contentment, is in him. The threats that come against us, that we think are, are so threatening, we have to dwell on these promises. The reality of who we are in Christ is real. The fullness of his glory is present, and we have access to it. Notice then as we skip down, our promise of redemption is sure. Because verse 14 is telling us, because again, what does Satan do? What's his name? He's slanderer, he's liar, but he's also accuser. That's who Satan is. So what does Satan want to do? Well, we saw that in the context of Joshua the high priest and Zechariah 3, right? He's the prosecution, bringing the charges. How can this man build the temple? How can this man be in charge of this? All these accusations brought against him. The angel of the Lord never says, well, he's okay, this is all good. But the angel of the Lord says, yeah, you're right. But I'm going to take his offenses upon me and covers him with new clothing. That's what we have in verse 14. This reminder that, that when past things come up in our minds and we think, oh, well, God could never love me or I can't come into his presence because of X. Verse 14 is the assurance that no, as the fullness of deity dwells in Christ and you have Christ, you draw near to your Savior. You do not wait for yourself to get everything in order because the reality is we won't. We come to him and as we come to him, we put our lives in order as we walk in him. So we're starting with him. But notice then in verse 15, 
This is a significant verse. Because now we have this disarming of the rulers and this triumphing over them. Uh, when we think about the reality of, of Christ being the one who suffers on the cross, we may think, well, maybe this isn't something that's really all that victorious. But the reality is he disarmed the rulers and authorities. So the rulers would be sort of like the kings of this earth. It is sort of, I mean, there's an overlap in these terms, but the rulers would lean more to the physical kings of this earth or rulers that, that would be governors or whoever that we physically tangibly see. Authorities has an overlap to those uh, physical rulers, but it also includes more of the spiritual domain. So in other words, if we're in a mindset like in America where we may fear more the, the rulers who are physically there versus, say, in other cultures that may uh, get more into the spiritual warfare, the demons, or, or the satanic powers, either way, we're covered. That's what Paul's saying. No matter where we are in terms of our tension, in terms of our struggle, we are assured that in the resurrection and ascension of Christ, these rulers are, are all finished. But he goes on. It's not just that Christ being seated in heaven guarantees that absolute victory. He tells us that he puts them to open shame. So this is basically publicly making a mockery uh, of those rulers. And so it's like Psalm 2 where you have the rulers that conspire and think you're going to rise up against God and he sits in heaven and he laughs at them. Like, who do you really think you are? I mean, Genesis 11 where I start, it's rather the ironic thing. They build this great tower and, and the presentation of using what we say anthropomorphic or, or man-like language of God still has to come down from heaven. He has to squint uh, to see this great tower they're building. And God doesn't take up a sword. He doesn't take up arms. He just simply utters a command. Let their language be confused. And then the, the project stops. It's, it's just a mere uh, subtle disruption is all God has to do. He doesn't even need to really put it down. And so that's sort of the open shame, showing the folly, showing the absurdity, um, humiliating the opponent, if you will. And this humiliation of the opponent uh, gets underscored by this triumphing over them. Uh, Paul in 2 Corinthians speaks of himself being on the triumphal procession beyond Christ. Uh, because in Corinthians, you know, they're criticizing whether Paul can really be an apostle because he doesn't seem as prestigious as uh, the super apostles. And Paul says, but you know, I'm on my triumphant uh, parade along those lines. So when Paul uses this language, it's recalling what Roman governors or Roman kings would do. Uh, so basically, after conquering a particular area or uh, geography or a city, that what would happen is that the king uh, would take the king from the conquered uh, city or the conquered place and maybe some of the higher-up generals that might be prestigious and the king would take them and tie them, it's rather gruesome, but tie them behind his chariot and, and parade around his hometown. And a lot of times he would uh, end up dragging individuals to the point of their own demise, their death. And the point of that was to say, look at how I triumphed over this man. I captured him alive, he surrendered, and here I get to execute him in the most painful, shameful way in the context of, of my own home city showing my victory. 
So when Paul takes this language and we say, well, what is the significance of the ascension of Christ? We should be picturing Christ as parading around in his chariot, we as a heavenly citizens cheering and saying, praise be to God that here he's dragging Satan and all those opponents behind his chariot, showing his ultimate victory, showing that he is one who shames all those who rise up against him because they will not prevail. That's what the Apostle Paul wants us to hear. And so when these individuals come into this church and say, oh, fear this God or fear this demon or pray to this angel or pray to this saint or whatever it may be, abstain from these foods, deprive your body of these things, and then you will have triumph. The Apostle Paul says you're starting at the wrong point. You need to start with who your Redeemer is. He resides in the glory of heaven. He has triumphed over all those things that threaten you and frighten you, he has overcome. And we are going to overcome in him because we find our fullness, our fulfillment in him. So when we ask that question, then how can Christ being absent from us be a good thing? And I want to phrase the question this way because isn't this how we think of the ascension? That Christ is absent. He's away. He's in heaven. But it's a false question, isn't it? Because Christ isn't absent from us. This is a very point that Christ makes at the Last Supper. I'm not leaving you. I'm bringing you to the next place where we need to go in terms of the redemptive program. I need to go to heaven. That's where I'm called to be. This, this world is undergoing the process of redemption and it's going to arrive at the consummation. But in order for it to arrive at that place, I must be in heaven. And he sends a helper as he promises. And what the Apostle Paul reminds us of is that as we take hold of Christ by faith and the power of the Spirit, we are those who are joined to Christ Jesus. We have overcome. He has triumphed over all of our enemies. The problem we have is a problem with our belief, a problem with our perspective. We don't believe this. And the Apostle Paul is saying this is where we need to start and we proceed and bring our lives into conformity with our Lord, knowing that we have overcome in Him. The power of, of God is present within us. And as Christ is in heaven, it guarantees we will arrive in heaven because our very glorified flesh is made fit to dwell in the presence of God. So don't fall into a trap of thinking your God has abandoned you, your Christ has orphaned you, or that your Lord is not present with you. Our Lord assures us He is walking with us in this very age as His redeemed people. He is leading us to glory, and He has overcome and triumphed over all the rulers all the principalities, all the spirits, he has overcome, and our victory is in him. Let us then call out to our God in the confidence of our great Redeemer who has overcome. Amen. Thank you for watching or listening to our podcast. Belgrade URC is a Reformed Bible-believing church that seeks to cultivate community around our Savior. 
If you desire to learn more about Christianity, please join us for worship each Sunday at 10 in the morning or 6 in the evening. You can do this in person or on our live stream. You can also utilize our archive sermon series on our website, urcbelgrade.com, or subscribe to our current sermon series through most common podcatchers. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you. Thank you.